soon as we, you know, we took our foot off the gas and we backed off, ultimately withdrew from Iraq, you know, it was remarkably fast uh, that, that the Islamic State kind of rose up from the ashes. And it's a cautionary tale, I think. Uh, when you look at the money that was spent, the resources allocated, you know, the intensity of the campaign that we took against al-Qaeda in Iraq, as soon as you stop, those gains are not consolidated by virtue of what you've been doing. It yeah. has to be linked up much more effectively with other efforts. Hi, and welcome to the 1CA podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. We're joined by Dr. Nicholas Crowley, who is a consultant and researcher. He's the founder of Frontline Advisory and the author of The Death of the Medi Army, The Rise, Fall, and Revival of Iraq's Most Powerful Militia. Nick specializes in firsthand examination of localized dynamics of conflict, development, and urbanization in the developing world. His work aligns strategic plans with local realities and equips frontline operational personnel with the skill sets and local insights necessary for success. Nick had previously served as a social scientist with the Human Terrain System. He also contributed to various NATO initiatives to integrate social-cultural information into military planning and operational processes, and he was instrumental in designing and delivering research planning and collection training for the UK's Defense Cultural Specialist Unit. Nick has PhD and MA degrees from King's College London and a BA from Yale University. His book, The Death of the Mahdi Army, was excerpted in Foreign Affairs, reviewed in Middle East Quarterly as, quote, the best recent book on Iraq, and shortlisted by RUSI for the Duke of Westminster's Medal as Book of the Year in the field of International Relations and Military Studies. Dr. Nick Crowley, thank you for being on the 1CA podcast, and welcome. Hey, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Now, you're calling from London, where you're currently residing, and you've got your own firm. Where can people go to find out more information about Frontline? Yeah, if you look up uh, frontlineadvisory.com, uh, there's a whole overlay of business and what we do and how we do it. That's great. And where are you yeah. doing some of your work now? Uh, so our work varies. Uh, we're doing some work at Fort Bragg with CA uh, around the concepts we'll talk about today. Uh, we're also doing some very similar work uh, in Iraq with the Iraqi government. We're looking to develop capabilities along these lines. Uh, then there's a commercial side of the business. Uh, and if you think about the skill sets of, of human terrain analysis and the idea of helping the military go into an unfamiliar environment and make sense of what's happening on the ground, uh, we do a version of that for Western companies going into the Middle East, into Africa. You know, how do they take a local view of what matters about the, uh, you know, the human terrain, the landscape around them, socially, culturally? dealing with things like labor issues, security issues, uh, community relations, and that sort of thing. That's great. And so that's built on your background of working in that area of operations, is that right? Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's based around you know personal experience in the Middle East and in North Africa principally. Um, and also you know, my work with the Army uh, was formative in terms of you know, how we think about entering into difficult environments and the way we take a view on what's happening and what matters. You know, my time with human terrain system what was definitely a formative experience, just trying to go into an environment like Iraq uh, and figure out where do we start to look, what questions do we ask, how do we ask them, and then how do we integrate those answers into you know, a practical 
the decision-making process. Right. Um, so, you know, the, the lessons I took from that early experience, you know, back in, in 2008 has, has shaped what I've done since then, you know, on the military side, from a training standpoint, uh, and on the commercial side, you know, providing uh, advisory services. That's awesome. And so you've referred to um, some of the questions that we're going to get into. So I wanted to uh, tell listeners about the article that sparked the interest in, in talking to you today. It was published by the Modern War Institute at West Point. That's part of USMA. It's entitled Moving Beyond Post-9-11 Manhunt, Translating Tactical Wins into Strategic Success. And it sounds to me very similar to what we're talking about in the CA community about consolidating gains. You've made some progress on uh, influencing the human population for the commander's intent, moving towards some of the lines of effort uh, and integrating civil information, for example. But how that can be translated to a higher level for strategic success, and I think that's the gist of what you're talking about in this article. Is that right? Yeah, and you know the word integration is key in all this, and you, know, you hit on that right there. Is how do we get all these different lines of effort joined up? Uh, and the article looks at you know some of the, the the issues we've had where we develop extraordinary capabilities, and the article itself focuses on on lethal targeting. We have this amazing capability. But how well are we actually joining it up with the other lines of effort that have to complement it uh, so that we can achieve a result? Yeah. So we'll, let's talk about that. You yeah. talked about, you, you argue that despite how the U.S. military has incredible efficiency in hunting and killing enemy targets, the U.S. government is just failing to turn these tactical wins into strategic success. And you argue that lethal targeting largely through drone strikes is something that's here to stay. And that's going to just continue to evolve as new technologies emerge. One article stuck out to me that you wrote, quote, a growing reliance on lethal targeting as a core instrument of foreign policy should be worrying. Why is that the case? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the short answer to that is because it, it hasn't worked uh, in terms of delivering a strategic result. The lethal targeting approach, whether you talk about drones, you talk about direct action, you know, it, it's here to stay, I think, because... Yeah, at first glance, at least, it's a pretty good or a pretty appealing solution to a lot of the asymmetric threats we're looking at in the Middle East and Africa and elsewhere. It's low profile. Uh, it's inexpensive comparatively. Uh, and we can romanticize this idea of sort of a surgical approach to counterterrorism, and a surgical approach to counter-narcotics, and even aspects of, of stabilization. You know, it, the problem is that you have to find a way to, to link it up elsewhere. And we look at this this idea that we can go in with kinetic action, lethal action, uh, and achieve certain effects. And you look at how good we are at doing this, uh, and the, the technology involved, the people involved, um, there are incredible capabilities there. But think about the theaters in which we've applied it. You know, let's think about one where it's actually delivered a result that's commensurate to our proficiency. And you just don't see it. Um, and I don't see a break away from this as a, an element or a core element of our approach. You know, when you look at the frustration and the disillusionment, the, the return on investment we got from all the development and capacity building work done in like Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, billions of dollars were spent to very limited effect. You know, I was in Baghdad in September, and you can go around that city and challenge yourself to find a legacy of SERP spending. You know, how many billions of dollars were spent, uh, and you know the lingering effect of that are concrete T walls. Uh, it really wasn't as effective as it ought to have been. And we can look back to 
well, this didn't work and it's expensive and we don't want to do this anymore. Uh, you know, the U.S. isn't in the nation building business anymore. And it's, it's tempting or it's, it's, it's kind of sexy as well to fall back upon this direct action approach, this lethal targeting approach to just surgically managing threats worldwide, you know, through special operations forces, through drone strikes, etc. But there's, there's danger in that because, again, we haven't seen a result from it. And there are some examples in the article about, you know, instances in which you know, it just didn't deliver. And, you know, what you wind up doing, you know, in the best case scenario is this sort of never-ending whack-a-mole exercise where you're disrupting networks you know, like we did in Iraq during the surge and you're keeping the enemy off balance. Um, but at worst, you know, you can have all kinds of unintended consequences. You know, you know, civil affairs is very much in the second and third order effects business, right? And you can run these campaigns. And I talk about Mexico in the article. They ran an incredibly efficient lethal targeting campaign targeting the, uh, the cartels, uh, which had monstrous unintended consequences. We can talk about that a bit a bit later if you want. I'm I'm thinking back to a book that I wrote I read called The Mission of the Men and Me by Pete Blaver. And uh, he's a former Green Beret who wrote about some of his experience in training. And he talked about the need to always have a guy or gal on the ground. And despite the drone strikes that may have been called in, he felt like he needed to have someone on the ground to confirm or deny intelligence and yeah. to assist with the targeting. But to get a sense of what enemy movements have been like and whether the local population is for or against you, and yeah. um, you, you just can't win things remotely all the time. Um, right. What What has been your experience about having a guy or gal on the ground relating to the human terrain team or the yeah. work that you're doing now? What's the well, value added I mean, to that? I, I think having that, that human being on the ground uh, is absolutely essential. And this is something that's a, sort of a big theme in the work that I do. And I was over at the uh, the staff college here in the UK yesterday, actually, talking about this to a group there. There's a big push toward, you know, the, the technologization, I guess, to make up a word of analysis and of intelligence. And, and this idea that we can remotely understand what's happening to these various sensor systems and remotely man drones, etc. And just sort of keep our hands clean to a certain extent. My point of view is, you know, that local human eye is absolutely essential. And you need someone on the ground to ask the right questions, to look at what's happening, to make sense of why things are happening. Because, you know, technology and the systems we have can give us, you know, the, uh, the all-seeing eye. And you can have real-time coverage of all these different things. But nothing in that whole system or that system of systems enables us to make sense of it. What does it mean? You know, we see these things happening. We see troop movements. You know, we have various data streams on economic activity, incidents of violence, etc. What does it mean? You know, the technology and the rest can show us correlation. They can identify patterns, but it can't explain any of it. And the challenge is to have someone on the ground or with access to people on the ground to get into it. Now, you know, that's the first step to my mind. And, you know, it's easy, I think, to, to nod along to that if, if you think that way. Where it gets difficult is executing. And this is where you know, I remember reading the, the coin manual back in 2007, where you can read that and you can read the new CA manual. I, I found it to be a very similar document where you can read it and, and agree. And there's all these different, you know, assess this, understand that, 
you know, remain cognizant of this, monitor that. There are these sort of statements of intent of things to do, but how do you pivot from theory to action? Uh, you know, what do I do with, you know, I can sit there and think, ah, the human terrain is a decisive terrain and the population is the center of gravity and all these great quotes. But if I'm there, you know, in Yemen on a Thursday afternoon, what do I do with that? You know, that's a big place where the human terrain system fell down is that it didn't have a systematic answer to that question. You know, what is the process? What is the method through which, you know, when we're there on the ground, we figure out what matters. Because, you know, one of the huge challenges of any human terrain type endeavor uh, or civil reconnaissance, whatever you want to call it, this is variations of the same thing, uh, is where do you start? You know, if you think about a place like Yemen or even a city, I think of a city like Mosul in Iraq. This is something I talk with the Iraqis about. You know, how do you go into that environment and figure out what matters? All right. You know, how do you go in and take a view of the fundamentals of the human terrain, you know, what are the different things we have to be aware of, uh, how do they relate to different objectives, how do they relate to the campaign of the enemy. Uh, there's so much going on uh, that, that knowing where to start and having a process to follow is absolutely critical. And that's been, you know, that was the biggest takeaway for me from my time with the human terrain system in sort of operational terms is that, you know, we had to develop on the fly a process and a method, you know, our own system. Uh, and then, you know, refine it over time by doing it. Uh, this is something that, you know, looking around, you know, internationally, in military, intelligence, law enforcement, you know, I'm not aware of any human terrain type capability uh, that's really been satisfactory, that's really done what people wanted it to do in the right way. Yeah. And, and a big piece of that has been the same underlying question of where do we start and what questions are we supposed to ask and how do we go from this huge broad view of a dynamic environment where all these things happening at once and all interconnected and this theoretical concept that all this matters and it's pivotal. Now what? How do we actually shift into tactical level action? And and, and that's the big focus for me. And, and that's what's at the heart of, you know, the, the conversations and the work we're doing with CA uh, and with the Iraqis as well. Uh, and with a few other clients is establishing a process and a method. So we can take all these ideas and put them into action uh, in a way that delivers practical results. Right. So after the break, I want to get into the case studies that you had about Iraq yeah. and Mexico. Uh, but before then, you talked about the human terrain team, and you served as a social scientist working on that system in Iraq. Right, right. Um, you, you talked a little bit about why it didn't pick up. Yeah. Well, why was the system shut down, and what do you think the Civil Affairs Regiment can learn from those ups and downs of that human terrain system? Yeah, I mean, there's a long story to kind of the, the rise and fall of the human terrain system. Um, and there's been some pretty, there's been a lot of not very good or useful things written about it that were pretty political. Whatever you think of HDS, you know, a lot of the commentary on it hasn't been that insightful. Uh, there are a few good things written. There's a, a guy called Chris Sims who wrote his doctorate about it, which is published, I think, the, the U.S. Army War College. Uh, that's out there online. Um, but, you know, the biggest takeaway for CA's point of view, you know, if I were sitting in, you know, inside your organization is, you know, a, a two-part sort of lesson learned. One is that CA has all the called intellectual firepower it needs to do this job. You know, I, I've spent a good bit of time with CA. 
Um, I spent again a number of years in human terrain system. Uh, I worked you know, corporates, academia, all the rest. You know, CA has plenty of talent. They have all the people they need, all the resources they need to do this job. And what they need, what, what the key part of it is, what I was talking about earlier, is to have process and to have method. Because you know, you have to find a way to be reliable when you do this work. And that's one of the big knocks on human terrain analysis as a discipline, no matter who's doing it, whether it's the human terrain system or it's you know, like J2X type, is that you, know, you get a lot of stuff that's nice to know, it's interesting, you know, interesting instead of the kiss of death word, right? Oh, that's interesting. But when someone says that, it typically means like, ah, thanks for telling me, but I have no idea what to do with it. That's <laughs> oh, one bless of the your heart. <laughs> it, it, time and time again, right? Yeah, thanks. Okay. Uh, we'll nod along to this for your 15 minute brief, but you know, I'm not going to read this again. And, and you know, I'm going to get back to my real work now and make whatever decision I have to make. You know, that's been the real, you know, challenge for that discipline, the whole endeavor of human training analysis, how are you reliably relevant? Um, and that's where, you know, what the human training system couldn't quite do is to get all that worked out in time. Um, but lessons learned from that process is there's a body of knowledge to draw from uh, and to draw from what the Brits did in their own way um, and what you know, the New York Police Department had an effort, uh, quite controversial, to do something very interesting uh, and ultimately pretty illegal. But the uh, the demographics unit is a case study worth looking at, and that's something we talk about when we teach this stuff. You know, this was an effort to use CCTV, undercover officers, you know, human sources to do a clandestine version of you know the human terrain system uh, yeah. and to map out areas of interest in the Muslim communities in New York. And yeah, there's you know all kinds of lessons to draw out from what's been done before. Uh, and again, the, the key to it all is to have structure um, and to have process that you can be reliable. Uh, and that's what I kind of drill home uh, whenever I talk about this stuff. Yeah, and it sounds like you need to have a champion or, or political cover for it as well. Otherwise, it's not yeah. going to continue. Yeah, I mean, uh, the human terrain system had a great story to tell, you know, in the right time, in the right place. Uh, when counterinsurgency was on the rise, and they tapped into that, or they were really a byproduct of that, and they were able to capitalize. And you know, there was some great work done within that system, but ultimately, you know, first of all, it was expensive, uh, very expensive. And you know, a lesson learned to CA is you don't need you know a whole bunch of expensive outsiders plugged into you. You know, human terrain systems spent a lot of money on tech that really wasn't fit for purpose. You know, I, I do most of my work, you know, pen and paper, you know, you know field notes. Um, you don't need fancy systems. If you, if you have a thing like Palantir, by all means, use it. It's a great resource. But there have been a lot of people, you know, spending a whole lot of money to, to develop ways to make this uh, a technology-based endeavor. Uh, and I think that's the wrong direction as well. Okay. Folks, you've been listening to an interview with Dr. Nick Crowley. When we come back, we'll talk about case studies, uh, stuff that he's found in Iraq and Mexico, and also ask some questions about how to translate this into success for civil affairs and what he thinks about ASCOPE and PAMISI. We'll be right back. If you haven't seen it yet, you're missing out. The Special Warfare magazine has dedicated entire issues to the Civil Affairs Centennial. 2018 marked 100 years since the beginning of a modern civil affairs capability in the U.S. Army. 
In that span of time, Civil Affairs created a heritage that deserves to be remembered and celebrated. Articles inside the special issue include Civil Affairs, The First 100 by Dr. Troy Sackety. It also includes Transformation Training, a focus on governance by Major Jennifer Jancy Schichter. Major James Ontiveros has written Megacities and Dense Urban Areas, Challenges in the Future Operating Environment. Check out the article from Morgan Kay titled Shaping Authority in the Human Domain, Transforming Civil Affairs Aperture on Governance. Mr. Mike Doughty has written the article entitled Civil Affairs Force of the Future, Empowering and Optimizing the Future Force. Rounding out the special issue is an article entitled Civil Affairs Warrant Officers, Bridging the Technical Capabilities Gap, written by Colonel Tom Matelski, Chief Warrant Officer 3 Chris Ludwig, and First Sergeant Chris Grez. To access a PDF copy of the Special Warfare magazine dedicated to Civil Affairs and its centennial, go to the Civil Affairs Association website at civilaffairsassoc.org. Welcome back to the 1CA podcast. We're here with Dr. Nick Crowley. He's the author of a paper titled Moving Beyond the Post-9-11 Manhunt, Translating Tactical Wins into Strategic Success. Nick, I wanted to ask you about the case study in Iraq first. Um, yeah. Describe what you found in Iraq and what you talk about in the paper. The argument in the paper uh, holds up you know, what we did during the search uh, as a great insight into sort of the the potential, but also the limitations of this lethal targeting approach. And to set this up, and I've got a bit of a, I call it a dissenting view uh, on what the surge was really all about. And to situate that, I spent the second half of the surge, 2008, uh, in East Baghdad, working on Matty Army special groups as a social scientist. So the whole hearts and minds, non-lethal engagement side of counterinsurgency was squarely my job. That's what we were supposed to be doing. And there's a wider narrative that still gets a lot of play that, you know, what we achieved in the surge, which was extraordinary, which was to, to stabilize and, and effectively pacify Baghdad over a two-year period. Yeah, clear um, hold build. It was, an, an, it was an incredible thing that was done. Uh, and there's a general narrative out there, and it sort of echoed again in the, the big study that's just come out, that this was, you know, on the one hand, there was a JSOC-driven targeting effort going after the, the networks that were behind most of the violence. So Al-Qaeda in Iraq, the Mahdi Army, special groups. Uh, but, you know, held up as an equal partner in this is the whole bottom-up, you know, security development, governance, outreach, brigade combat teams spreading out, you know, into the AO, uh, on the ground to do the grassroots element of this. Uh, and, you know, from my point of view, as someone who did the grassroots version of it, I, I never saw any evidence that what we were doing was the driving force behind anything. My view on sort of the non-lethal hearts and minds element of the surge is that the stuff we did was able to have, was was possible because of the space created by lethal targeting. Uh, and my view on our ability to stabilize and pacify Baghdad is that that was overwhelmingly the byproduct of lethal targeting, complemented by just external factors of the fact that you know the, the, the Shia Sunni civil war had pretty much ended by then. Uh, the sectarian fight was subsiding and these networks were vulnerable. And okay. we went in and we went after them from the top down. Uh, and, and people like me uh, who were tasked to go you know, house to house, door to door, 
you know, neighborhood to neighborhood, talking to people uh, and trying to build up local grassroots support to help consolidate that achievement. You know, we made very little headway. And the areas in which we worked went from being very dangerous and very violent in 2007. Uh, and there's a great book by uh, the Washington Post journalist called The Good Soldiers, which is about the uh, one of the battalions that worked the, the far eastern edge of Baghdad that captures you know, how difficult uh, and how tense that AO was in 2007. And then in 2008, suddenly it was stable and it was peaceful. You could walk in these neighborhoods, you know, no problem. Uh, and, and that was absolutely not the result of anything I was doing as a social scientist, winning hearts and minds. Um, this was because we had successfully gone after the fairly limited networks that were behind most of the violence. Um, and, you know, when you talk about integrating the lethal and the non-lethal, you know, for a whole range of factors that are beyond our conversation here. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned the book, you know, the, the book that I wrote about the Matty Army is the story of all this, of why this happened, why the Matty Army rose up and fell down. And it, it kind of goes against, I guess, a bit of what most people talk about when they talk about the search. Yeah. Um, but we were out there engaging with people to very limited effect. We really weren't able, not through counterinsurgency malpractice, but because of what Iraq was and because of how Iraqi society had been kind of brutalized through the years, you know, dating back well before we arrived, we weren't really able to muster that local support and consolidate those gains. Uh, and so, you know, when the surge ended, we pulled out and a few years later, you know, JSOC and the various task forces that have been operating out of, you know, the airport of the IZ, uh, they took their foot off the gas and very rapidly the remnants of Al Qaeda in Iraq reformed as the Islamic State. And you see, you know, a lethal targeting approach can get you space and time. It can disrupt a network, but it's not going to take you much beyond that. You're not going to destroy the network in that way. And, you know, again, as soon as we, you know, took our foot off the gas and we backed off, ultimately withdrew from Iraq, you know, it was remarkably fast uh, that, that the Islamic State kind of rose up from the ashes. And it's a cautionary tale, I think. Uh, when you look at the money that was spent, the resources allocated, you know, the intensity of the campaign that we took against al-Qaeda in Iraq, as soon as you stop, those gains are not consolidated by virtue of what you've been doing. And yeah. It has to be linked up much more effectively with other efforts. Um, and this is where that's sort of a best-case scenario, I think, for what lethal targeting can do. Uh, it can buy you that space and time. And it's an incredible success story of that discipline for what it achieved, I think. Um, and I don't want to come off as though I'm trying to knock this as a discipline. Um, it's quite the opposite. It's very effective in doing certain things. But we have to remain cognizant of what the limits are uh, in terms of what we can achieve. And, you know, the, the Mexico example is all the more striking, where if you look at the, uh, the drug war there from 2006 over the following 10 years or so, uh, the Mexicans ran a you know a manhunt style targeting campaign, and they took down 107 of the top 122 high value targets they'd identified. And this is an incredibly effective campaign, and you can call You're talking it about people sort of like a, the Sinaloa cartel and El Chapo. Exactly, this is like El Chapo and the rest. You know, they had a target set, and they went after them, uh, and the U.S. was involved in this to a certain extent, uh, and that's. Not really a, a story that's spelled out sufficiently in the news, but yeah. you know they'd run, they ran this campaign, 
and it was enormously successful by its own terms. Uh, but what was the result? And the result was a disaster, uh, where you had you know, the disruption of these networks not consolidated in, in any way by any follow-on action and creating just chaos where you had violence within these organizations when, you know, that the head gets chopped off, different people fight to take over. And as these organizations were destabilized, you had cartels fighting each other over turf because people, you know, they, they smell vulnerability, they smell opportunity. Right. And the whole dynamic became exponentially more violent. The murder rate shot up and everything got worse, basically, based upon a very successfully executed targeting campaign that didn't really account for second and third order effects. What comes next? You know, how do we look down the road? And I'm not trying to, to sharpshoot the Mexicans. They have a staggering challenge on their hands. But for our purposes, when you think about, you know, hybrid warfare and, and some of the literature and some of the thought on these sort of next generation threats that are part narco, part terrorist, part political, part legit economic, part social and media networks all rolled into one, whether mm -hmm. it's the Hezbollah or the Sinaloa cartel. Looking at what the Mexicans did and how poorly it went, uh, you know, for the Mexican people, most of all, there's lessons learned in there in a huge way, um, yeah. particularly as, you know, we start talking about designating the cartels as terrorist organizations. I mean, that's a precursor to unleashing our, our targeting capabilities there. Yeah. That, what that designation does. If um, listeners want to check out a really cool fictionalized version of this, uh, the Netflix Narco series is pretty amazing. Yeah. I've it, heard good things about that. Yeah, it, it tells you about the rise and the fall and the, the politics of it all and, and the economics. Right. It's fascinating. Right. And that continues right. today in in Mexico and Colombia and many countries. Yeah, and, and this is where, you know, the the point, I guess, of the article is, you know, how does this all tie together? And we talk about lethal targeting. We talk about human terrain analysis. I mean, on the face of it, these are two very different things done by entirely different types of people. You know, in entirely different locations, you know, physically. Uh, you know, how do these two match up? Uh, and the argument I take and, you know, the work that I do is based on the premise that we have two disciplines here, both of which have tremendous importance, tremendous value, tremendous potential, but they're underperforming, right? Or I would argue that, you know, for as good as we are at lethal targeting and at executing that process, we should be getting more back from it. You know, we should see a better result. And if you look at human terrain analysis, you know, lots of people can sit around and agree that this stuff is important. We have to take a view of it. But how many people out there are really satisfied with the capability they have? And how many people are consistently going back to that as a repository of information or as a key resource in the decision-making process? And personally, I see that as sort of two sides of the same coin. Um, on the targeting side, we're having an issue, not in the execution of a process, but in, in sort of the intelligence that feeds it. Uh, and when we talk about network targeting, we talk about you know things like Palantir and I2. You know, we, we build these link analysis charts that that represent the enemy. It's the Taliban, or it's you know an element of the Islamic State in, in eastern Syria. And you know, I use the the metaphor of uh, we we view it like a cloud, like a molecule in suspension, an isolated thing. And, you know, people in the targeting business go after that network as they see it, as that kind of cloud that's detached from the landscape, and they attack in various ways. Uh, and 
the problem uh, from my point of view is that we're missing a huge piece of what this network is. Um, you know, the, the, the Taliban is not some distinct entity that kind of floats above eastern Afghanistan. It is a part of the human terrain. You know, that, that cloud is in the cloud. And, you know, the, the comparison raised in, in the article is, you know, think of it more like a tree where you have these branches and limbs, and that's the network that you see in your current link analysis chart. Yeah. But there's also this massive root structure sinking down into Afghan society. Right. And that's missing from the target. That's missing entirely from the entire viewpoint that underpins our lethal targeting process. Yeah, David Cofone's written a lot about it, about being an organism. So if you cut out part right. of that organism, right. it's going to have right. to adapt and there'll be something else right. to fill that void. Or You have to see how it's all connected. Exactly. And to, to kind of get that, that pivot from theory to action is uh, I personally think that you know, the analytical processes of targeting are a great place to integrate that viewpoint. So rather than viewing this cloud or this molecule with our, our wire diagrams, we have to take a view not just of the network itself, but of that root structure you know, within the targeting process to look at how the whole thing connects into the, you know, the soil, into the human terrain. Uh, and this is where human terrain analysis fits in. And, you know, the big knock we've talked about is the need for structure, the need for focus. You know, where do you start? If you have the, you know, the human terrain analysis mandate in eastern Syria, what are you looking at? There's, you know, thousands of ways to begin an inquiry. And the answer, I think, or the way forward to do this is to structure it around that view of an enemy network. So we have that that molecule and we map these roots sinking down into the human terrain and we understand these relationships of when, where, why, and how this network has established this particular relationship to a particular community, a particular tribe, a particular element of the political economy. That's a structured investigation into something that matters. It's absolutely going to matter. It's absolutely going to be operationally relevant. And we look to conduct human train analysis. It's an outgrowth of that. So this network has established this local relationship. Well, why? You know, what is it about the local economy? What is it about local society? Are there cultural factors involved here? Are there, you know, what exactly is happening that enabled that relationship to be? And that is your guideline. You know, that's the, the channel you can follow to conduct human terrain analysis. The two fit together in a way where I think both are better for it. Okay. Uh, yeah, please. Well, Nick, I wanted to ask you this final question here about how we move ahead. Right, so you provided some answers, but for the civil affairs community, for example, yeah. you describe ASCOPE and FEMISI frameworks as fill-in-the-blank, yeah. and that we need a roadmap to uh, quote, yeah. guide exploration, not analytical boxes to tick. So how would the civil affairs community, and you're working with some of them now, how would yeah. you suggest that they move ahead to develop more of that context and anticipating those right. second and third order effects? Yeah, so I mean, to, to go back into the question a bit, I mean, ASCOPE and FEMISI, I think work as a way to present information, right? We have these boxes, we have these categories. If I know a lot about Raqqa and I'm being asked as the human terrain guy or the, the, you know, as a CA officer to feed into the military decision-making process for a particular operation, you know, that, that grid is a, a perfectly useful way of plotting out, here's what we know, here's what's going on. 
uh, it's all neatly boxed up and you can look where you need to look and get quick answers. So as a presentation tool, uh, I think it's a perfectly good one. Um, the problem I have is that if I go to Raqqa and I don't know what's going on and I'm trying to collect information and investigate, I don't think it's a particularly good framework to explore and to get at answers because you do wind up with sort of boxes to fill in and it's sort of a reductionist approach to figuring out what matters uh, where you have this complex system of systems operating and you're told to go find areas, structures, etc. What's political, what's military, etc. You're breaking things down into pieces uh, without really knowing you know, what's going on here? How does it connect? Um, what is important and why? Uh, so what I think the, the way forward is to, you know, to keep ASCOPE, keep MACI as, again, a reliable, perfectly functional way to input information into the, you know, the military decision process, into the strategic plan process. Um, but to get to that depth of information, there's a need for, you know, different processes, different methods. Uh, so looking at the, at the CA manual, there are guidance that's saying effectively, you'll know, understand this, assess this, and, you know, the, the methodology piece, um, starts, you know, assess, you know, go out and figure this out. Well, how? That, that's that missing pivot, I think, is the step between theory and appreciating the importance of all this and acting on it through practical steps. And what I think, uh, is a way forward is to implement these steps. You know, here's how we go through this process. Here are the kinds of questions we ask. And when you look to kind of narrow the view of human train analysis or human network engagement, um, and when you look to narrow the view of, of how do we, you know, conduct civil reconnaissance with particular objectives in mind, you know, it, for me, it comes back to using the targeting process and our view of a particular enemy as that anchor and building out steps and layers of analysis from there. Uh, that, I think, offers a clear, structured way to start someplace where we're comfortable, where we know how to understand, we know how to analyze, uh, we know what we're looking for mapping out what a particular enemy network is. And we gradually build out from there by looking at the shape of this network, how it's structured, why it's structured a certain way. That's going to tell us certain things about its, you know, its connectivity into the local environment. And then we look at that root structure. You know, how has the Islamic State developed particular relationships you know, in and around Mosul, in and around Raqqa? What does that look like? And then from there, you're, you're developing not boxes to fill in, but lines of inquiry where we have certain dynamics, certain you know indicators we know are important, and we're going to empower people with a skill set and a process to go investigate them. Right. Um, and this is something where you know from the very beginning of my work with the military, you know, I, I time and time again find this sort of frustrating experience of there being a lot of intellectual creativity, a lot of brain power, but systems and processes that don't really empower soldiers, officers, to go and, and use that. Uh, and it doesn't harness the, the talent that's out there as effectively as it could. And, and you know, I'd love to see a roadmap and a process and a method um, that equip CA personnel you know, in a deployed environment to really be investigators and to have, again, if you're anchored in that process and in that method, right. you can take on that intellectual creativity. You can really investigate, not with your ASCO PAMISI chart, but you know, with kind of the the mindset somewhere between uh, an intelligence officer and uh, you know 
an anthropologist, sociologist type, where you're really digging into things and exploring in a way that you know from the very beginning is going to give you the results that matter because of the questions you're asking, right? Because of the lines of inquiry you're after. Well, Nick, so, I think you know, you've laid down a challenge here. Uh, I think this is <laughs> a really good challenge that um, I think the CA yeah. community can rise to. Dr. Nicholas Crowley, you laid it out, man. You've been there, you've done that, and I I think, I hope that people will listen to what you have to say here. Um, Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, Yeah. uh, Awesome. Much appreciated. This is great. Dr. Nicholas Crowley, consultant researcher, founder of Frontline Advisory, and author of Death of the Mighty Army. Sir, thank you very much for being on the One Save Podcast. Thank you. All the best. Take care. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.